This is episode 2-2 of Free as in Freedom for Tuesday, February 14th, 2012. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. And this is Free as in Freedom. So we now have uh, a series of shows that will be talks, which means we'll get plenty of angry email about people who hate talks and hate listening to talks <laughs> and hate that we make the podcast talks and all that stuff. Well, no matter what we do, we get uh, we get some angry emails and some happy emails. So, Which is weird, given that we only have three listeners. No, we definitely have more than three listeners. A few people told me at, more than a few people told me at FOSDEM that they were listeners. What do you mean by more than a few? Like, what number is that? Uh, definitely over five. Okay, well, two or three people said something to me. So that's five, six, seven. So we have maybe at least seven listeners. But that guy said we only have three listeners. So where's So what about his data that shows there's only three listeners? He clearly doesn't have any. Are you sure? <laughs> I think he was just talking. Well, why would people say things that are, are untrue like that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think he just, I, I, I don't know. Well, maybe I don't we think ha- it was particularly well thought out. Okay, well, I guess we should, uh, we should assume we have three listeners just to be safe. I think we have, uh, we have data that confirms that we have, I, I, I would say we have confirmation that we have at least 20 listeners. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think, I think there's just one listener who's using lots of different IP numbers to download the podcast. Or you think that uh, that person is a shapeshifter and could, uh, could visit us in person? No, he just paid people to come up and say that. <laughs> that we that have would one be... really, really wealthy listener with a lot of time on their hands. If that's true, that wealthy listener should identify themselves. Give, <laughs> give us the money as a donation and we'll, we'll, we'll do special episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a very special episode. They're all very special episodes when we have talk recordings, after all. That's true. And these were particularly good. I think the room at FOSDEM that we co-hosted um, was 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 really a success. The room was on the small side, but it was it was burstingly full the entire time. Well, that's uh, I I said this many times at, on the site that it was probably better that we had a room for seventy five that was constantly had a waiting list than to have a bigger room that we couldn't fill. Uh, I spent most of the time in the hallway because I had to manage the crowd and I sort of gave mini talks to the crowd from from time to time because there was this issue that we'd have people queued up for the next talk. There'd be like 25 people wanting in. We'd be able to, there wouldn't be enough turnover. So we'd let 12 more people in and then those other people would be standing there having already waited a half an hour for the next talk and not, not even getting into the next talk. Um, I heard you say that you were giving mini talks. What were those mini talks on? Oh, just people were asking questions about you know the usual stuff. Oh, okay, that's yeah, the cool. Usual. Just usual questions and answers and stuff. And in fact, it was it was somewhat bad for us when Tom got back because Tom was very strict on the on the uh, number of people, and he basically was only letting the number of people as we had number of seats, and I was letting people sit all up and down the rows and stuff of the 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 walkway up to the talk, which I guess was a violation of the rules. I don't know. I think that was better though. I mean, I, I was, I was sitting in the aisles for a lot of it and um, you know, I, I thought that was good. It, you know, there, I don't think it was a fire hazard. There was a clear path in and out of the room. 
There were a few people who were really aggressive with me demanding to get in. It was pretty bad. It was a bad scene a few times. But it's pretty great that the room was so popular. Um, Yeah, I guess that's true. One one woman was basically trying to manipulate me to get in. She was giving all these reasons because there weren't many women at the conference, so I had to let her in. She said that? Yeah. And, wow. and, and was just trying. And finally I said, well, I said, the problem is, is that there's like 14 people standing here. And mm-hmm. if I let you in, they're all going to say, well, why? And she came after them anyway. So I said, if I let you in, then they're all going to want to let, I could let one more person in maybe, but I can't let all these people. in. so if everybody here votes to let you in, just you, then if it's a unanimous vote, I'll let you in. And then there was a unanimous vote. So they let her in. <laughs> That's so great. <laughs> Which I think they probably did because they wanted her to stop complaining that she couldn't get in. Oh, just to keep her quiet. Well, because that was the whole conversation was about how I wasn't letting her in. Wow. And she kept asking to be let in. So anyway, she came in. So that worked out. Well, so I I switched between mostly between our room and the cross desktop room and the cross desktop room. And sometimes was completely packed. There was one talk I couldn't get into, actually. And that was a much bigger room. But there were other talks where uh, there were many fewer people than were in our room. Did you go up to the bouncer and say that you were a woman and you're the executive director of the Gnome Foundation you had to be let in? No, but it was really funny. I was standing outside uh, with Deb Nicholson, um, who you, you guys will hear on a um, – on, she, she appeared on the, the patent panel that I moderated. We'll, we'll play that one of these um, episodes. Um, she and I walked over to the cross-test tap room together. We saw that the sign said that the room was full, so we just you know we just started walking away, and we saw uh, two guys come by, and they just walked right in. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and nobody threw them out. Although, you know, when we, we looked in there, it was, it was very, very full and, you know, we wanted to respect the, you know, the sign, which said that no more people could go in. Yeah. The, the venue has a lot of rules because it's a university and they have, uh, limits of the number of people that can be in each room. And they, and they asked us at the opening session, uh, to, and, and they sent an email to the chair conference, the track chairs, uh, asking us and everybody to make sure to respect that because it was a real issue. Um, and they might not get the venue again if uh, if if they violate those rules too much. And there was apparently people spot checking. I heard and that sort of thing. So, right. Well, so, uh, so should we go on? Go on. Should we get no, to the, the talk? Gonna, you want to introduce the talk? That sounds like a good plan. Well, I was going to say that uh, that at least uh, it's not a, we're not presenting the talks in the order that they um, they occurred on the day. Um, but uh, but for today, we're at least presenting them in alphabetical order by first name. But that's just with one data point, and we probably will break that next show. So I don't know how much that helps. But it's funny. Okay. <laughs> so we. Uh, so do you want to? You, you actually were in the room for this talk, right? I was not. I was out bouncing people. I was, but um, but I think you should introduce it uh, because I don't actually have the official name of the talk in front of me. So it's a talk by uh, Ambjorn Elder uh, regarding methods of uh, FOSS activism, as he titled it. Uh, I would have said FOSS, but he said FOSS, so I'll say. What and he I said. would have said FOSS. <laughs> but why? Um, so uh, so that so that's the talk, and we'll listen to that. And I, I have a bunch of comments I want to make on this talk, so uh, so we'll just li- I'll let everybody listen to it, and then uh, I'll make my my comments. I have to make. I did I did listen to it you this mean, morning. You mean we'll discuss it afterwards? Yeah, but I, I'm going to have comments, and then you'll have comments, and I guess if we disagree, we can discuss it. Correct. Okay.
Hi there. Uh, so, uh, my name is Ambjorn Elder. I'm a master's student at the American University of Paris, uh, where I study international relations, and that draws upon other fields like uh, 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 political science and sociology and anthropology and uh, political philosophy, all of which I'll incorporate a little bit in what I'm talking about today. Uh, I draw on these disciplines in order to examine our uh, free and open source software community. Uh, and the specific subject of what I'm, I, I t I'm talking about today and what I'm studying is how FOSS uh, gets political, FOSS activism and FOSS advocacy. This, so it, th this stuff interests me when it gets political, and, and that's what I'm going to be talking about today. Getting political for me is not just talking among ourselves about wonderful things like uh, the best software license and whether GNOME or Unity or KDE is better. Getting political is taking our conversations and presenting them outward. Uh, towards various different kinds of institutions, uh, especially the other three pillars of modern societies, which are uh, the other two pillars of the three pillars of modern society, which are government and business. We are, as a community, in the civil society group. Oh no, I was already there. Yes, okay, civil society. We're the we're the little we're the little pillar. What we do is twofold. Mostly, we talk to each other. We talk to each other a lot. We talk to each other on IRC. We exchange code, which is speech. Uh, we meet in conferences like this. Uh, sharing information sort of defines who we are, defines what we do, and defines the structure of our community, defines who's in it, who's not, what's strong, what's, what's weak, what's influential. Uh, and when we turn outward, the first thing I think that we always do is we try and do code, right? We, uh, when, when there was a problem with decrypting DVDs, people in, uh, developed the CS, the DCSS algorithm. Uh, Richard Stallman developed new tools in reaction to the, the, the locking down of, of the, the Unix at, at MIT in the 1970s. Ed, Eben Moglen had this great quote in the speech that he gave that, in, uh, that in, uh, inspired the, uh, the diaspora guys to start their project to develop a better alternative to Facebook. Uh, that he's not saying that Facebook should be illegal. It should be obsolete. We're technologists. We could, we should fix it. And that's, I feel, sort of the, the baseline for how we like to approach the, uh, prob problems that come to us. And I say we, because I consider myself part of the community, although my, my coding skills are, are poor. Uh, I, I contribute a little bit to an open source game, and that's a lot of fun. And I like to hang out, and I like to read about it, and I, I, I submit bugs and bug reports and all this kind of stuff. And I create some bugs. Uh, so I feel I'm part of it, and I think, I assume that all you guys do too. So this approach is successful up to a point. Uh, we have a fantastic free and open source software community. We have the internet as a free and open, as an open platform for the entire world. Uh, we have an internet that's based on the technologies and the ideas, fundamentally, of open standards and open source software and, and even open culture. But, and this is because, although, but although, on the internet, code is law, lex technological rules, right? Code is law is less, less technological is a, a New York professor's uh, uh, law professor's formulation. There are other laws. There are international laws, federal laws, state laws, 
local laws, local regulations. And when technology doesn't work, we turn to the regulations. We have the GPL, we have legal defense funds, we have fantastic lawyers. I'm sure there are some in this room who, who are able to design legal tools to advance our interests. Uh, we as a network can bring our skills to bear. And again, usually one of these two things works. But what, what, what about when they don't? What about when uh, justice and liberty are denied in a domestic level? Uh, what happens when hacking is difficult, when the internet is locked up? Then we have to turn to, and we do turn, to a third method, to a, to a third approach, which is activism. It's when civil society sort of earns its stripes as that little pillar. Uh, we try, the, the, the thing you have to do is change the laws and change the shared values of society. So that's what activism is. That's what we do. Uh, so, how do we do it? Well, when we, yeah, this horrible acronym, uh, when we, mostly the, the tool, the activist tool that we've used is what this guy Charles Tilley calls WUNK. Worthiness, unity, numbers, and commitment. They're shows of great public support. It's, it's the 21st century equivalent of going out in the streets with billboards. Uh, we, and, and which we do as well, and which in fact helped with the, I, a little hazy on some of my, my political history here, but, but helped with the European uh, software patent exception, right? It, help, it has helped with uh, opposing ACTA in certain places. It, ha, it ha played a big role in the recent SOPA uh, displays of that we, that our subject is, our topic is worthy of consideration, that we are uh, united, that we all share the same goals, that there are a lot of us and that we're willing to do what it takes and not let up and not go away just to be nice. So that's, that's mostly what we've used. We also do other things. We do lobbying. Uh, I know that at Sun, uh, and, 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 uh, at, at Oracle as well, there have been, I, I don't, and I'm sure at other, at other big open source companies as well, there are people who are dedicated to making sure that the legal framework for free software is there for their business to continue. There are people employed to do this. I've spoken to Simon Phipps, and I know that was his job for a while. Uh, we do letter-writing campaigns. Of course, there's a lot of communication articles and things like this. And a month ago, I would have said, that's really sort of the full range of what our community does when we get political. It's fairly good, but it's fairly limited. Of course, Two weeks ago, whatever it was, the SOPA protests happened in the United States, and this was, for me, astonishing. The, the range of, of, of activist strategies that were used. Uh, it was much more of an, an innovative than what we've done before. Uh, do I have another one? Yes. Much more in innovative than what we did before. Uh, it targeted the general population. It was a really widespread goal. The, the blacking out of websites was extraordinary symbolic politics. One of my favorites is this Paul Ryan campaign, which targeted the voice of a specific constituency to try and change the mind of a specific U.S. congressman and, and succeeded. It seems like it succeeded. He certainly changed his, his, his position on, on the subject. And this is real, real specific, real powerful symbolic activism. 
what then has to be done, of course, is to use it and, and, and use it as a symbol later on to, to spread the word that the, the argument can be successful, right? Uh, but most of these things are still varieties of wonk, worthiness, unity, uh, numbers, and commitment. They're symbolic, they're people coming together, which is, of course, organizing in this sort of loose way is what we're really good at. Uh, and we've had some successes. Right, do I have a success slide? Yes. As I mentioned, DCSS, the EU software patent exception, and, and, and various other things. And as I said, we still have this great open internet and this great community. However, there have been a lot of legal, uh, strategic political failures. Uh, the Sin Law, the Spanish activists got it defeated once, and then it came back in ever so slightly modified form three months later, and it passed no problem, attached to another bill. Uh, the Great Firewall of China, and things like it, right? It's the horrible, the horrible uh, e extreme, but there's now talk of something similar in... Twitter. in huh? Twitter. Absolutely, right. Twitter. All of these, all of these, yeah, all of these walled gardens. So, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that's constraining our wonderful open internet. Uh, Hadopi in the U.S., in France, Three Strikes Law in New Zealand, all of these things uh, that free software and associated activists, free culture, uh, free data activists opposed and unsuccessfully combated. That may be all I have for slides, but I do have more things to say. Yes, it is all I have for slides. Uh, so, um, so what, so, so what's better? Uh, the, the, what, what I study is, is the, 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 the wide range of, of civil society activist strategies. Uh, and, and they vary enormously. And what we are, what I believe we are, is a, a transnational advocacy network. Just like, or similar in many ways, to the women's rights activist network, to the human rights activist network, to the, 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 the racial, um, racial equality network that, uh, uh, created more or less legal equality bet uh, between uh, all citizens of the United States in the 1960s. Uh, these transnational advocacy networks have been a developing trend in international politics for 200 years. And they've had some incredible successes, and we can learn from these successes. Uh, one of the things that these advocacy networks do really well is they work internationally, uh, or transnationally, that groups that share values in one place liaise with groups that share values in another place and, and use all different parts of the network. They make allies. So, who are the allies that the free and open source software community that doesn't acknowledge at the moment? Well, are you aware that the U.S. Department of Defense is a big user and contributor to free and open source software? They share values with us. Now, we might not be able to get them on our side, but there are people inside of it who, inside of the Department of the U.S. Department of Defense. And there are so many different places because the technology is so powerful, the methodologies are so fantastic, the community is so creative, uh, and it extends in so many different places. So we have so many people who are on our side that we don't talk to, that we don't include, uh, that we, we don't speak to. Uh, 
we have tended to work at small and accessible levels. So the um, uh, Jeremy Zimmerman in uh, of uh, La Quadrature du Net in France. He talks about how, and and Simon Phipps has done this as well. Talks about how targeting the the most accessible uh, governmental or or larger than governmental organizations like the European Parliament is a good way to make sure that we have some sort of impact. And this is of course true because unlike French Parliament. Uh, members of parliament, uh, senators, you can actually get a phone conversation with these people. Uh, however, that's not where the power is. Uh, and so the people who are working for a limited internet, the big media corporations, try not to sound paranoid, right? They're, they, there's, there's a really big strategy going on. They're working at multiple levels. There's ACTA. There's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, there is, uh, at the same time, there are national laws like SOPA, like the New Zealand Three Strikes Laws. Uh, and there's, this, this is a concerted campaign because these, these organizations believe that the, what, what they're doing is, is, uh, is ensuring that the, the good functioning of the, of the, the future economy, the intellectual property economy, uh, you know, for, for go, going forward. We don't work at that many levels. We don't work at local levels. We don't do enough to <coughs> bring in local communities into our uh, in, into our network. We don't do enough to uh, to, to talk to local governments, to state governments, uh, to and the the success of these enormous transnational advocacy network projects that I mentioned before, the the, the women's rights campaign, where governments now that don't allow women to vote have to justify this on the international stage. Fantastic. This would have been unthinkable a hundred years ago. The hundred years ago, the, the governments that allowed women to vote were by far and away the exception. This shows that advocacy is the process of making the once in unimaginable obvious. So we shouldn't limit our imaginations politically any more than we do technologically. One thing that I have really enjoyed doing being a part of this community is, is, is meeting people who are progressivists, who believe that the world is getting better every day, and we're doing it. We sit down at a computer and we make the world a little bit better. We talk to each other, we make the world a little bit better. And uh, there is such a range of different methodologies that we can use. Uh, I always feel a little bit like a tease because I hint at them, and that I can never quite deliver on the full range of things. Uh, I have on my blog, uh, listed, uh, a page that has 196 different ways of, uh, using advocacy. Thank you. Uh, and, and so, uh, my, you can link that through, through the, the, my presentation page on, find the link to that through my presentation page on the, the Fosdom website. Uh, but I think right now, although I'm not ending with a bang, I think I'd like to end there and see if anyone has any response or come back to what, these ideas. Thank you very much. So I actually really enjoyed that talk. 
Well, I, I have some issues with it. I, I think the good thing about it was that he raised the issue that this needs to be an activist movement and we have to be fighting and raising issues as part as I think he, as he put it, the civil society has to be working together to raise issues with other parts of the society and culture. That part I, I like. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, that for me, that was the most important part of the talk that I thought was really, um, you know, was really interesting. Yeah, my, my concerns were in part that he was conflating different types of activity. So I think the title of the talk was a little bit incorrect because he was talking more about Internet rights activism instead of FOSS activism or FLOSS activism even because he's not talking about advocating for open source and free software. He's talking more generally about Internet rights and digital rights, which I think are very important issues. And well, I'm glad I, that there people are advocating for them, but there it's it's a super sad issue in some ways. Well, to be fair, I don't, you know, and admittedly, I haven't heard the talk since we actually were in the room over the weekend, um, so maybe my recollection isn't as sharp. But um, but I thought that he was he was talking about all of these things lumped up together, and I, I thought he was saying that you know I thought he was saying that we needed to advocate for free and open source software specifically, oh, and I that we should you we should take the opportunity of of you know of this you know you know, of SOPA and, you know, and, and, and other internet rights issues to, to make our issue heard. I think that's correct. Although, uh, he was talking a lot about, uh, about advocacy for ACTA and what open rights group does in the UK, which is, again, it's a superset issue. Um, and using that as examples, he was sort of using that as examples of successes and then saying the other things were failures. And, and that leads me to my other point, which I, is I, I think I, I mean, I was actually a little upset when I heard his example of, well, the Department of Defense are our ally, and so they, they have some shared issues with us because they use and contribute to free software, and we're not talking to them at all, which is actually false. And and so that really frustrated me because um, he obviously doesn't know the story of what happened with Terry Bollinger and his MITRE report and... Microsoft trying to basically get Terry fired from MITRE over the fact that he wrote this report saying the Department of Defense relies heavily on open source and free software. And if it were to be taken out of the Department of Defense, it would be a disaster. And then Microsoft went and lobbied MITRE to get him fired, basically. Um, he came and gave the talk uh, at a, a government and open source conference that I was at where Microsoft was also present. And there was actually a really good um, group of people, including me, uh, of activists who were trying to raise the issue that, that Microsoft was trying to fight Terry's report and, and all that sort of stuff. So, so we've gotten engaged, uh, with that specific example he gave, which is like say, well, you're not even talking to the Department of Defense. Well, that's not true. Um, in cases yeah. where we could coordinate, we've coordinated. So I felt that, that, and there was another point that, that I did a lot of work in, in when I was at FSF in Massachusetts, um, helping Massachusetts, uh, switch to open Office. There was a very friendly CIO uh, to open source and free software in Massachusetts at the time, actually under, of all things, the Romney administration. Um, and he was very willing to switch to something that wasn't Microsoft. And Microsoft did a ton of lobbying uh, in, in Beacon Hill about the issue, and we fought them. And so I think that yeah, he might not be as informed about things that have been done for advocating open source and free software uh, in, in in from the civil society into the these places. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think and that frustrated me too because he acted like the free and open source software community didn't didn't even know what the DoD was doing. Whereas, um, you know, we quote the I quoted the uh, the DoD heavily in my killed by code paper. 
mm-hmm. um, because they've published FAQs that have great, um, great information about the safety of free and open source software. Right, um, and he didn't so, even mention yeah. your work. You know, he wasn't even aware of it, presumably. Yeah, and you know, which is why I talked to him afterwards, and he was really excited, and you know, hopefully we'll be able to work together in the future. But um, but I told him that you know that we had we quoted the DoD in in that paper, and um, you know, and 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 he he wasn't aware of that and was excited by it. So you know, I mean, I think no no one can know everything, um, and and by by providing a forum where we can talk about these issues, that's how. You know, that's how we, we, we come together and, and, and present a more united front. So I'm glad he actually made that point because it, it caused, you know, I, I talked to him right after about it. Um, and, um, you know, hope, hopefully he'll have more information going forward. Yeah. And, and, and so, and so he, he did admit that he's an academic who just studies this and doesn't actually participate. And so it's understandable that um, he, he might not be as informed as we are. And he did make one good point about saying this is what nonprofits and foundations are for to do this kind of civil society work. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you and I working for nonprofit organizations in the free software space. Uh, obviously, that's our daily work. So we're, we're in some sense more informed on that. Although he did mention something weird. He said that, that, uh, that it just surprised me. He said the Electronic Frontier Foundation has a lobbyist on staff. Yeah, I heard that too. I wasn't aware of it. I mean, I know that they do. They had it. I think they had a DC office. I don't know if they still do. No, they they um, moved to San Francisco a long time ago. I know, but they also maintained a DC office for a while. Oh, I had heard that uh, as they moved I know Marcia, from DC to San Francisco because they went from Boston to DC to San Francisco. But I, I think for a while they did have a lawyer in DC. I don't know okay. if that's still true. Yeah, I, I should I, know. I was surprised. I mean, I I, I know that the, the 501c3s in the United States can do a certain amount of lobbying, but to have a whole staffer doing it, that seems might be over over too much. Yeah, it would depend on, you know, on the ratios, right? It's all about percentages. Yeah, that's true. And I also and, was wondering if he was confusing EFF and EPIC. That's my other worry. Yeah, I don't so, know. Okay. Um, well, I guess I guess we can research whether uh, EFF has a lobbyist or not, and and, and report back. Um, so uh, the other the other thing that I, I I wanted to make a point about, which is it's it's I, I think it's a this this is something I often say, which is that uh, free software as a social justice cause, it's just not as central to social justice as say women's suffrage and civil rights. Those kinds of examples he was giving of of very, very strong civil society activism that was able to make a change. It's just not as important as that. I mean, being a free software advocate, I'm sort of speaking against my own interest to say that, but but these other issues are much more important. The right, women's right to vote, um, people being oppressed in, in the South, uh, uh, in, in, in the United States, uh, you know, post-slavery, th- those sort of issues are much bigger and more important issues than free software. If free software is somewhat of a, of a first world kind of problem, uh, the issues of, of proprietary versus free software. So I think it's tougher. It's funny. I, I agree with that, except that it's, uh, it, it's an incredible aid to third world progress. Agreed. Um, Agreed. But I agree with you. I mean, I, I, but, but I think one of his points was, and again, I'm a little reaching because I, I don't remember, but I, but I thought that his point was sort of like the way that we, you know, we reconsider our norms. Um, and he used examples from from some of those areas to sort of say, well, you know, w- the way we consider the norm now as proprietary software can shift um, because the way that we thought of things, you know, 50 years ago is the way we it's very different than the way we think we, we we're accepting of, um, you know, of of 
you know, various kinds of oppression or, 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 or bad behavior in other areas because it was the norm and that hopefully, you know, in, in free software, that won't be the case going forward and that we can shift the, the attitudes in the same way. Uh, I did just look up EFF and uh, David Sobel is still listed on their staff page um, and he's in DC. Oh, okay. So they have one lobbyist. I don't think he's a lobbyist. Okay, then, um, like holy, but I think he might do. Okay. Some. He, so he's, he's 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 in charge of their FOIA practice, actually. Oh, interesting. I don't so know. I, so I wonder why uh, Amborn said he was a lobbyist, so or said there was a lobbyist. Okay, well, we, we could we could figure that out uh, later, I guess, and I, I mean we can ask him by email and, and see and, and update uh, the listeners the next show. Um, so I, I think uh, I think that's pretty much all I had. I mean, I I. I I, I'm sorry to be, to have not been in the room and now being critical, having heard, listened to it this morning. Um, but, uh, I, I think, I think that it may be, it may be a criticism of our format. The fact that we only had a half an hour format and he didn't have more time to get into more examples. That could be part of the, the reason why it was, it was, it didn't have as much uh, in-depth, uh, discussion. Uh, and people uh, did question us about the format and, and we, we, I think are questioning the format as well. I, I think there were good and bad for the half an hour format. Yeah, I thought I knew about obviously since I was one of the organizers, I knew about the half hour format and, um, you know, thought about it, but, you know, didn't really say anything about whether I thought it was okay or not. But I tell you, I hadn't paid attention to the fact that the panels were also a half hour. And when I went to prep my panel, I looked at the schedule and I was floored to see that it was just a half an hour. Um, That was really tough. Yeah. Well, maybe we should we should think differently. If if we could get two two days next year, uh, I that would be good. Uh, and, and then going to forty five minute talks would be a little bit easier. Um, and yeah. we, we, we Mike, were, go ahead. Mike Linksfair actually said in his, in his blog about um, about the room that he would have probably benefited from having only a fifteen minute slot rather than a thirty minute slot. Oh, interesting. Because yeah, with a fifteen minute slot, you can't belabor background points. You have to simply get to the you know get to the points that you want to make, and then maybe have fifteen minute questions. So we might want to think about doing you know fifteen minutes of discussion, so that there would actually be some real substantive um, discussion with the audience. That might be something we want to think about. Yeah, yeah, I, we 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 could definitely think about that. Um, I I was I was amused that uh, it, it, I, we're probably going to cut this from the recording because because uh, it was all administrative. But there was somebody in the audience who because the next talk we we actually did a replacement talk. You and I, um, somebody was saying, well, we should take this time and continue discussing this issue, <laughs> right? Which I thought was funny. Um, well, I thought that was a good suggestion. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it was at that moment that I realized that we hadn't built in any discussion time. Well, but the, there was Q and A time. So I, there I wasn't. Know. Okay. Well, we have a year to figure out what we're doing. Right. With this. Um, and I presume you may not, you were making speeches in the hallway. So you may not know that there wasn't really Q and a time. Some of the, the talks did have time for Q and a, but those were the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Although we did, t- we did tell the speakers it was 30 minutes and please leave time for Q and a. Yeah. But 30 minutes is so short. I guess um, it, uh, you know there's that Noam Chomsky point about how you can't get on the uh, on the mainstream media unless you can uh, speak with concision, which basically means you ha- you can't give any arguments that are outside the norm because you're forced to never give background and just make points that people already agree with. Right. So. I guess you I guess that's your argument here. So maybe maybe we should go to forty five minute talks. I mean, I guess we could and and see, and we'll just have to accept fewer people. Even if they're half-hour talks where we build in 15 minutes of discussion afterwards, or maybe even 10 minutes of Q&A and five minutes of, of break to switch rooms. 
Yeah, well, the, the switching rooms thing doesn't really help at Fosdem because everybody's on a different schedule. Yeah, but just getting people in and out of the room was very, very stressful when we didn't have any time for transition. Correct. It that was, was tough stressful. on the speakers. Yeah, it was. It was. I think it was mainly stressful because the room was so was so full. The, if you remember the first two talks where the room was the only time it wasn't full, um, it was much easier. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I had to I had to get people to queue up in the right way and and get out of the way from people coming out because we were up at the top of those stairs like that. It was uh, it was it was quite it it was it was hard being that bouncer all day. Um, I thought it was so. cool how you stepped up to crowd control. Well, I felt I felt obligated because uh, because Tom had done so much work uh, to plan the, the the sessions, do every all the planning before we got on the ground. I felt like uh, we should let him be able to switch to the other dev room. He helped plan the Java dev room and uh, and not have not have require him to be in control of of that of that as well. Of course, when he took over crowd control for me, he changed all the rules. <laughs> uh, which made the people in the hallway even more angry um, because he wouldn't let people in <laughs> what I would have let them in. Uh, but anyway, so uh, so I, I guess uh, so I guess we should probably stop uh, ranting about the various different logistical issues we uh, we had at Fosdem since uh, it's a, probably of no interest to our listeners at this point. Well, I guess our listeners can hear how we're learning. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I'd never been to Fosdem before, so I didn't know what it looked like. And, yeah, me and, neither. Uh, and Tom Calloway had told me it's a it's a uh, uh, in his very North Carolina way of putting it, um, he said something like, "It's a, it's a ten, it's a twenty-pound conference in a ten-pound sack, or something like that." So it, it, I, I was expecting an uh, overcrowded conference, um, but and the, it was, uh, th- yeah. But the stretched out over so over the entire campus that was that was uh, that surprised me. Yeah. The fact that there, there was like a 15-minute walk between buildings. Uh, the the really tough work. part was that the, the 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 building that the booths were in were um, was all the way across campus. So that was really tough because, you know, I, I spent some of the time in the GNOME booth on Sunday. And, um, you know, there were people coming over, but there really just wasn't the kind of traffic that there usually is at conferences for the, the expo floor or the booths. I, I, I was surprised at that, too. I only went there at the very end um, over to K, uh, Building K, as it was called. Yeah. It can't make me think of Joseph K from uh, from uh, uh, of, of, of Franz Kafka's writings. <laughs> so geek. Uh, why is that geeky? That's, <laughs> that's like a kidding. major piece of literature. Uh, you know, I actually think of R- Richard Fontana is is the Franz Kafka of free software. That, that I determined when I went to the Kafka Museum in Prague. Really? Why do you think that? I don't know because so much about the about Franz Kafka's life reminded me of of, of like the way the way. The way Richard Fontana is about not uh, like not releasing his his writings, and he hasn't started his blog and all this stuff, it just remind, it reminded me of because you know Franz Kafka didn't publish anything uh, until after his death. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and he actually told his friend to burn everything. He see on his deathbed, he he died of tuberculosis. On his deathbed, he wrote to his friend saying, "Please burn everything I've ever written immediately." Wow. Yeah. And so Richard Fontana is writing a lot of materials, but he's not publishing them. Well, I think well, he has a lot of ideas that he doesn't publish. I don't he know does have a lot of ideas. Them. It's true, and they they often manifest in talks that he CC by SA license licenses. That's true. There are a few, and we're going to hear one of his talks later. Uh, I wonder if he'll be offended. That I think he's the Franz Kafka free software. We'll, I told we'll him have this, to ask him. Really understand. He didn't really. I told him this uh, personally, but he didn't really understand what I was saying. Yeah. So he hasn't read. He, I think he said he hadn't read. Uh, he hadn't read the trial. So. Well, he's a he's a listener. 
That's true. And so I guess he'll, he'll tell us uh, how he feels about this. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, I don't think there's anything else we need to cover. Uh, we're, we'll be, we have, uh, I guess, at least four more talk recordings. One, two, three, four. Yeah, four. I don't know. You mentioned the panels, Karen, but I don't know if we'll actually get the panels. Oh, that's too bad. Um, There's a lot I, of discussion I, 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 they there. They sound okay. I want to send them over to Dan, uh, producer Dan, and ask him if he thinks they're okay because the audio levels of each person are different because the mic was in one place. And so it, I don't know how much work it's going to be for him to normalize the audio levels. Well, so maybe I'm they send don't need to be ask. normalized. I'm not sure, but people people write in and complain when our audio levels aren't equal. And they, uh, they, they, remember that person wrote in and said the, that he was going to crash his car because of our show because he has to adjust the volume so much. Wow, so, I don't, don't remember, remember that. that? He, no. he said you're going to cause an accident if you don't fix the volume levels. Wow, of that's show terrible. I know it was horrible. I, I thought that was horrible. I was very upset. Yeah. Um, um, so I've tried to normalize the audio levels uh, better, make sure that you and I are at the same mic and. Uh, at the same distance from the mic and so forth. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, I worry about these things because like if somebody has an auto accident and blames freeze and freedom, I mean, does that, does that, as a lawyer, can you tell us if that causes us liability? Oh, uh, it would cause us a tremendous amount of bad feeling for the rest of our lives. Yeah, but I don't think we would be legally liable. Would we? No, I, 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 I highly yeah. doubt it. Yeah, I strongly recommend if if you are listening in your automobile, please do not try to adjust the volume while driving. If you are if you are unable to listen to this because of whatever reason in your automobile, I suggest that you pull over to the side of the road, listen to the show, and when it's done, get back on the road. There we go. I would say right. uh, listen to something else. <laughs> get to where you're going, and then when you have another time when you're off for a walk or something, take a listen. <laughs> um, yeah, but do not put the volume too loud while walking. Because you may not be able to hear traffic noise nearby you, and it could be dangerous. I feel like we so should do a video, like a you know, like a traffic safety video with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't jaywalk. So. I, know, I I know you don't jaywalk. <laughs> I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm a safe walker for sure. So. I'm okay, a safe so, walker, uh, but I do jaywalk. Yeah, um, that's against the law. You, you're saying you violate the law. Uh, I do jaywalk. That's a violation of the law. <laughs> Traffic laws exist for a reason, for people's safety, Karen. People's safety. That's true. That's true. I, I apologize to the public for, for putting you at danger when I cross the street when there are no cars on You're the road. You're putting everyone at danger. You're putting the society, the civil society is, is at danger. I apologize for endangering you, society by, um, by crossing the street when there are no cars present. Um, we do have one other recorded talk that people, or so rather, some people, or at least one person has requested that we, we put my uh, LCA talk on Freeze and Freedom. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to do that. Yeah, well, I, mean, I was thinking maybe we should do it after FOSDEM, since it's been long enough now anyway, we should get through all the FOSDEM talks and then do that. Yep. Okay, so that's the plan for that one. We will put uh, Karen's LCA talk, uh, assuming you can get it. Have you gotten a recording of it yet? No, but we can probably pull the audio off of some of the uh, the video publishing. Publish okay, that's good. Video posting, rather. Can't speak today. Oh, good. Okay. All right, so that's a plan, and we'll do that after the FOSDEM talks have completed. So I want to thank everybody for listening, and uh, there's more FOSDEM talks uh, to come in future episodes of Free As In Freedom. Great.
Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley and Karen, on Identica, and also read Bradley and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faif.us. That's faith.us. <laughs>